For the little guy, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Now, the next thing we could consider is the subject of the minor prophets in particular. What do I mean by subject? That is the major theme of the minor prophets and to whom they were written. All right, now, when we say to whom they were written, when we think about the prophets, to whom were they written, we have how many choices? Northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Northern kingdom named what? Israel. Israel, southern kingdom named what? Judah. Okay, so basically we have two options with the prophets. The prophets are speaking to either the north or the south. Sometimes they're speaking to both. But we'll, we'll look at the majority view. So let's begin with the first minor prophet. first minor prophet again is? Hosea. Hosea. Okay. And what's the theme or the motif of the book of Hosea? Somebody said, well, I just picked up this book in the motel room and it fell open at Hosea and I'm reading this prophet Hosea. What's this all about? Can you tell me what it's about? Can you give me the big picture of Hosea? And what would you say? You uh, church members have been members of the church all your life, more or less. What's the, what's the basic theme or motif of Hosea? I'll come get it, Mary, when I'm done with this, and we'll, we'll do a kind of little round off. Thanks. Unfaithfulness of Israel. Pardon? Unfaithfulness of Israel. Unfaithfulness of Israel. Of Israel. The unfaithfulness of Israel, why? Why does that come up in Hosea's biography? Well, it's like um, he married the prostitute. The unfaithfulness of his wife, right? So the motif is what's her name? Gomer. The motif is Gomer and her infidelity to Hosea. And that's the end of the story. What did she do? She left him for what? Somebody more attractive. Somebody more attractive? A lot of money more people attract more attractive, so she said. She became a cult prostitute. Probably the bail call. And of course committed serial adultery, fornication, etc. So, that's the end of the story. That of course is a picture of Israel's spiritual prostitution. Northern Kingdom in particular. So I've given away who the subject is. But is that the end of the story of Hosea? I don't know. But she comes back and then Hosea takes her back. She comes back. Oh no, she doesn't come back. No, 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 no. Pardon? He remains faithful. Yes, he does. But in the third chapter... He redeems her. He buys her back. Why? Well, 
What do you do with a whore when you're tired of her? Put them up for sale. You sell them. He found her in a slave auction. And he bought her back. Okay. So, Hosea is speaking of the infidelity of Israel to God like the infidelity of his prostitute wife and of the faithfulness of God and his grace to redeem his wayward people even as Hosea redeems his wayward wife. Alright, so Hosea is directed to the northern kingdom of Israel. Next comes next prophet Job. Now once again, what's the motif of Job? Once again, you've got that person in the Motel room has got that Gideon Bible and fell open to the book of Joel. And what's this all about? What's the, what's the major story here in this book? Ah, certainly no Pentecostals in this audience. That was a hint. The Holy Spirit being pointed out. Yes, who made that idea famous? Who even goes back to the book of Joel to emphasize that idea? Oh. On the day of... Who is it? Peter. Yeah. What chapter? Two. Two of what? Acts. Acts chapter 2. Correct. So, the motif of the book of Joel is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, in which Peter's great Pentecost sermon, Acts chapter 2, says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So the major theme of Joel is the outpouring of God's spirit upon his people. Now who is Joel prophesying to? Who is he sending this message to? It's either Israel or Judah. It is Judah because of the temple imagery in the book of Joel. After Joel, what book do we have next? Amos. Once again, what's the motif of the book of Amos? chapter 15 this time first general assembly the council of Jerusalem this is what Presbyterians like to call the first general assembly yeah. how did the book of Amos end the great precious promise thus saith the Lord I will rebuild the fallen booth of David. And James repeats that at Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. <clears throat> it's the motif of restoring the fallen house of David. In Amos chapter 9. And that prophecy is directed towards which kingdom? 
Israel, to the northern kingdom. Now, as I said, sometimes both of them are involved, but Amos is from Tekoa, and he's sent to the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, after Amos comes Obadiah. And who's he prophesying to? Edom. That is true. But it's against Edom. But he's also prophesying to whom? Judah. Yeah, he's prophesying to Judah. So we're going to put J with an E in parenthesis beside it. And what's the major motif here? Yes, destruction of both nations. Yes. Judgment of God on Judah and on Edom. Right now, after Obadiah comes, Jonah. And here's one where we have to look up another parallel passage. Who is Jonah prophesying to in his book? Well, we first have to understand where he came from. So let's turn back to 2 Kings, chapter 14. This is an interesting historical passage. Because, of course, it's a passage which the liberals dismiss entirely. <clears throat> Beginning at verse 23, 2 Kings 14, 23, which talks about Jeroboam becoming king of Israel. Now this is Jeroboam the second, who did evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 24. But he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath, which is in the north, to the Sea of the Arabah. Where did the Sea of the Arabah? Remember your map that we had at the beginning? I know that's three weeks ago. But the Gulf of Arabah is one of the fingers of the Red Sea on the east side of the Sinai Peninsula. So that's definitely a southern border. So Amos is on the north and the Sea of Arabah is on the south, way down there to the Sinai Peninsula. According to the word of the Lord, God of Israel, which he spoke. Now God spoke. Who did he speak to? To his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now if you turn over a couple of pages from Obadiah, if you have your finger there, look at the first verse of the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, whose son? Son of Amittai. And that's the same name you've got in 2 Kings 14.25 so that you can actually date Jonah to the reign of Jeroboam II. So, Jonah is probably... No. No. Yes. No. First Kings 14.25 says he's prophesying to who? 
to Israel, correct? Northern kingdom. But he is commissioned to go speak to Nineveh. So what's the motif of the book of Jonah? What's the basic theme? How would you know what the basic theme is? The nice story about a gourd that is spared? Well, I know what the Bible says about it, is it? Nice story about a great fish swallowing up a man? Oh, that's getting a little closer. How would you know what the book of Jonah is about? Well, hold your finger and Obadiah and turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 to 41. He answered and said to them. Who answered and said to them? Jesus. Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Uh-oh, Jesus is saying something about the book of Jonah being about him. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Why? Well, because Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the Jesus. Death and resurrection. Particularly about sparing Nineveh. It's about Jonah being conformed to the death and resurrection of Christ. Which is the reason Jesus says that that's the sign that we're given to us. He's prophesying. Even with his dying and rising, he's prophesying. Even as Jesus says, that's the only prophecy, that's the only sign I'm going to give you. And did those in the days of Jeroboam II believe the message of Jonah? I preach unto these people in Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. They won't listen to the word I say. Now you want me to go to Nineveh? What makes you think that I'll have any more success in Nineveh? I'm going to Tarshish, the opposite direction. It's precisely because Jonah is an Israelite, Israelite prophet. Well, that's more about Jonah than wanted to know tonight, but at any rate, that's the key, and the key is in that Matthew 12, and it's parallel in the Gospel of Luke, because Jesus is using that incident in a particular way. All right, now what do we have here? Do you notice? Do you notice what we have? In this category... And is to Judah. The third is to Israel, the fourth is to Judah. Fifth is to Israel. What's after Jonah? Micah. Micah. And what's the theme of the book of Micah? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Where will we find him? In the little town of Bethlehem. How do they know that? Because of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So the theme of the book of Micah, which is directed to Judah. All right, so is this an explanation 
for why Obadiah is in the position that he is. He stands in this alternate Israel-Judah, Israel-Judah paradigm, but he's also directing his prophecy against a foreign nation, namely Edom. And he stands before another prophet who directs his prophecy also to another nation, namely Assyria and Nineveh, who is an Israelite prophet. And then we have Micah, who is a Judah prophet, is symmetrical. Is that the reason Obadiah is in the position he is? Well, this is an interesting sequence. From one, the object of God's prophetic revelation from one kingdom to another, alternating between Israel and Judah until we get to Micah. And after Micah comes Nahum. And Nahum is prophesying the destruction of Nineveh sometime before 612 BC. So that means that only Judah is in view. Habakkuk. He's prophesying to Judah again because Israel is gone. Israel has been destroyed in 722 B.C. So everybody after Micah is directing their remarks towards Judah. Now it is true that Haggai and Zechariah are post-exilic. That is, they are restoration prophets after the children of Israel come back from captivity in Babylon in 539 B.C. And Malachi, Malachi is probably after them, although it's very difficult to date Malachi, but he definitely is after the restoration or the return to Jerusalem. So the pattern disappears, that's my point. After Micah, everybody is Judah. There's no Israel anymore because there's no Israel to receive any of that revelation. That nation has been destroyed and carried off. The ten tribes have been carried off by the Assyrians and the destruction of Samaria, which is also noted in the book of Obadiah. We'll get to that eventually. So although this is an interesting schematic okay, for suggesting how the books are arranged. They're arranged in alternate order. One featuring Israel, the other featuring Judah, and back and forth. For the course of these one, two, three, four, five, six books of the 16. But it doesn't consistently follow out for the other ten books of the 16. All right, so although that's an interesting exercise, it's not a compelling exercise. It doesn't compel our understanding of why Obadiah is placed in the, in the canon in the position in which he, he, he uh, exists, in which he... I'll, I'll have you cogitate on what the right answer is while I go get hooked up. And then I'll give the right answer to everybody listening in. Did you have some questions? All right, well, we've looked at some interesting approaches to why Obadiah is in the position in the canon in which he is. Is it because he's kind of the midpoint of the prophetic books? 
He's in position number eight after Isaiah. And then there are eight books after him. That's an interesting observation, but it would mean that the smallest of the book of the prophets has a kind of central position, which I don't think is likely, in my opinion. Yes, Cheryl. Why, why, why not? Why are you saying that? Why, why? Because the smallest book would not have the most prominent position, in my opinion. Some, something more substantial would have a more prominent position. Now, I'm not saying that he's, he's unsubstantial. He's substantial in what he does. But he's the least of the prophets. The smallest book in the Old Testament. Smallest book among the prophets. So I don't think it's likely that that's, that's the reason he is in the position he's in. And you've already noted that there's no inspiration behind the arrangement of the books in the order in which they are found in your Bible. <clears throat> Now, the second thing we noted was this alternate, alternate schematic in which we find that beginning with Hosea, we have a prophecy directed to the northern kingdom and then to the southern kingdom in Joel, to the northern kingdom in Amos, the southern kingdom in Obadiah, the northern kingdom in Jonah, the southern kingdom in Micah, and then that pattern disappears. <clears throat> so that doesn't seem to be a symmetrically, a consistently integrated symmetrical pattern because it drops out after the destruction of the northern kingdom. Well, what possible explanation could there be for the position of Obadiah in the canon? It comes from that passage we noted a few moments ago, namely the ninth chapter of the book of Amos. So you've got your Bible open to the book of Obadiah, and if you still can see part of chapter 9 in Amos, glance up or turn the page back to get a look at that last that ninth chapter and put your eyes on to verse 12. And what do you see there that jumps out at you? Edom, yes, there it is. So, at the end of the prophecy of Amos, there is a statement about Edom. At the beginning of the book of Obadiah, there is a statement about Edom, verse 1. Is it likely that Obadiah was concatenated, hooked, placed after Amos because of the prominence of Edom at the end of the previous prophet and the prominence of Edom at the beginning of the subsequent prophet. Now, I can't prove that, but it is the explanation that makes the most logical sense to me. If there is any real, shall we say, logical explanation for why Obadiah is in the place it's in, it is possibly because Edom at the end of the previous book and Edom at the beginning of the subsequent book is a nice tandem. It's a nice hook pattern. It's a nice concatenation. All right, now, of course, that's my opinion. I can't prove that. Uh, we don't have any uh, list of the books of the Bible in this position from the time that they were written. In other words, we don't have a copy of the Bible when after Obadiah wrote it and it was inserted to the scroll 
of the scriptures as a whole. We don't have anything like that. So this is uh, this is based on tradition, based on the Masoretic test of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's based in part upon some information derived from the Septuagint. The Dead Sea Scrolls don't help us because the Dead Sea Scrolls don't give us a complete text of the whole Old Testament. They give us fragments or pieces of scrolls from various parts of the Old Testament. So that's the best I can do with that intriguing question, why is Obadiah where it is in the Old Testament? And I know that was on the tip of your tongue when you came in tonight. You really wanted, you were dying to know why it's where it is. But. Thank you. Now I tonight. Very good. <laughs> I don't want you to lose any sleep over this matter. <clears throat> Go ahead, Kay. I think that that is true, and I think that for the first six, that this pattern probably has something to say in its, in its favor. The last ten, that's another issue. So, in other words, they, they have been arranged for some reason. Now, this is a providential reason of God bringing them together. It may be that it's a, an arbitrary providential reason. In other words, there is no, uh, in other words, the purpose of God in doing this is not what I've outlined here on the book for uh, Hosea through Micah. That's, I'm perfectly willing to recognize that. But I'm intrigued by these patterns. Whether my intrigue is madness, my being intrigued is madness, or whether that's me, me reading the problems of God accurately, I don't know. In the case of Obadiah and Amos, I think it's a little easier to see there's a reasonableness here as to why they're together or they follow one another. What ends one begins another. That, that, that makes a nice kind of seamless garment in this case, in the case of these two. So, the, in other words, it's, it's a question worth considering. Whether we have the right answer, that's another matter. Obviously, in the problems of God, this is the way it's fallen out. But in the problems of God, when things fall out, then you want to start thinking about, well, why is the problems of God the way it is? What's the reason? Or at least that's what I think. That's what my mind does, okay? But obviously, you're not going to lose any sleep over it. So we'll go on to the text, unless you have some other questions. Oh, we've got other questions. Oh, yes. You're suggesting that it's not known under what circumstances this order was determined or who did it. Is that correct? That is correct. So I am, I am trying to fathom whether there is some order there in, in God's providence for why he wanted these in this particular sequence. I can't say, I can't say that he did except after the fact this is what exists. Okay, so it's post-hook, but I'm intrigued as to what internal elements there may be to suggest it, or if there are any. And yes. Okay, so they all didn't live at the same time, right? That is right. Some of them are hundred years, hundreds of years apart. So you go back to even God predestining their birth to coincide with this time that they would be involved in talking about. Right, well, he, he predestines 
what they are going to speak in their book, okay? So, does he predestine the arrangements of the book? Well, indirectly he does, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out why it is that they may be connected the way they are according to God's sovereign providence. And these are my suggestions. Yeah, I'm not thinking about their birth per se. I'm, think, I'm thinking about why, why their message is, uh, is in the order in which it is. Why, why is Hosea first and so on? Cheryl, you, you were going to ask yeah, something? I find it interesting that it doesn't matter what translation of the Bible you, you have, they're always in the same order. That's correct. The Septuagint is different, okay? So we're based on the Palestinian, what's called the Palestinian canon, the canon of Jesus, the Jewish canon. The Septuagint is based on the Greek canon, the Alexandrian Greek community in Alexandria, Egypt in the third century and following. Okay, well, um, that little exercise uh, may not have stimulated you too much, but, but I, I think it was fun in its own right. So now let's take a look at the text. We do get to the text. So I hope you have your Bible open and follow along as I read the first two verses. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord And an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, Rise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. Now, the first word that attracts our attention here is that word vision in verse 1. So with that word vision, what do you see? What do you see in your visionary imagination? What does Obadiah see? What does he want you to see? Art? The Lord is speaking. About whom? About Edom. He wants you to see Edom. Now... You've seen Edom, haven't you? You've seen it on a map. So where is it? Clyde, where's Edom? Describe the location of Edom for me. East of Judah. East of Judah? That's fine. You want to be any more specific? 50 miles. A little more than that. What other... What other landmark do you remember that is nearby Edom? The Dead Sea. In relationship to the Dead Sea, where is Edom? On the west. On the west. No, it's not on the west. It's on the southeast side. Yeah, so Edom is on the southeast side. Does it flow? And Edom has... Three geographical areas, right? Remember we discussed the sections of the geography of the nation of Edom? There is a part of Edom that is on the what side? 
rift. Yes, the rift. The rift comes out of what? The Dead Sea. And it cuts all the way down into Africa, East Africa. So the rift, which is called the, in Hebrew, the Arabah. Remember that word? The Arabah. Okay. The rift is the Arabah, and it divides Edom east and west. And what was that western section called? The Negev. The Negev, which is the Hebrew word for south, the southern portion of Judah, which the Edomites seized as a part of their own nation. What's the terrain of Edom like? You've seen pictures, at least if you saw the links on the handouts and you looked at the Internet to see those. And incidentally, all of them are up now, so all you have to do is click on the handouts on the Internet version and you'll be directed directly to the site and you see the pictures and everything. All right, so what, what kind of terrain are we talking about? Yeah, extremely mountainous. Now, there are some plateaus, some grassy plateaus, particularly on the west side. So you see in your, you see the vision that Obadiah sees. He sees this geographical land. The east side, very arid, very dry. So we've got the geography and the location of the state or the nation of the Edomites. We know a little bit about the terrain, which is very important for understanding what Obadiah is going to say. Next, what do we also see about the quality of life in this nation. What kind of a nation is this? Is this a poor nation? Terry's shaking his head. Why why do you say it's not a poor nation, Terry? You're right, it's not. Well they became uh, wealthy trading and industry. Very good. The trade or commercialization of Edom was important to her prosperity and industry. What particular industry? Yes, the copper industry. You saw or you saw pictures or we talked about the archaeological discovery of those copper mines. So here you have the picture of this prosperous nation flourishing because of the copper trade, copper industry producing money, uh, copper being bought by other nations who are on those Trade routes sending their caravans to Edom in order to buy copper and take it back to their land. Also, these caravan routes bringing all kinds of goods from where? Where are these goods coming? These caravan routes, this mercantilism that's present in Edom, where are they coming from? Terry? Mesopotamia and Egypt. They're, they're going to Mesopotamia. They're coming down from Mesopotamia. Coming from Egypt? Mm, not entirely not as likely as they're coming from coming from the Horn of Africa, coming from Somalia, coming from boats which are going from Somalia to the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. What country is at the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula today? Oman, is it? Oman? Oman. No, Oman's on the east side. This is on the tip on the west side. Yeah. Yemen, yes, Yemen. Civil war in Yemen right now. Okay, so uh, who who in the Old Testament came from what is modern Yemen? By caravan. 
Sheba? Queen of Sheba. She came from that tip down in modern day Yemen. Yes. All right. So at any rate, if you can picture the Horn of Africa where Somalia is, it's that little horn that cuts down and it's at the edge of the Arabian Sea and the merging of the Arabian Sea and the uh, Red Sea. Anyway, boats would go across there from Africa with the trade of Africa, the gold, the riches, the ivory and so on that came from Africa into the, the tip of Saudi Arabia or the Arabian Peninsula and then they would come north through the Edomite nation and the Edomite cities and plains and then on their way to Mesopotamia, Damascus and Mesopotamia. And of course, there was trade coming the other way down. So this is an extremely wealthy trade uh, uh, nation uh, with all kinds of uh, prosperity and wealth being generated. All right, so we've got that picture. We've got the geographical picture. We have this uh, uh, economic picture. Uh, What other picture do we have about Edom that you recall? Who are they descended from? They are descended from Esau. So we have a biblical story picture. We have a picture of two brothers, two twin brothers, two brothers that were in conflict even when they were alive and two nations which carry on that conflict even in the days of Obadiah. All right, so we have this visionary picture when we say Edom, that we fill in from geography, from archaeology, from uh, commercial records, from trade records, from the biblical story, the the narrative of Edom in the Old Testament, some of which we outlined in our second hour uh, a week, couple of weeks ago, and and is on your that uh, handout, the first handout. So we have this interaction of a narrative drama between Edom and Judah. And Obadiah, the servant of the Lord, wants you to see it. He wants you to visualize it. He wants you to have that vision in your mind as you read through his book, which he is presenting to you. And in fact, his vocabulary, his language, his imagery is extremely visual. There are a lot of pictures here. He's creating a great tapestry throughout this small book of prophecy. All right. Um, We'll take a pause there, and we'll come back to uh, consider a few other elements of these first two verses. There's something else to visualize there in that first verse, and that's the rising up of the nations to go to battle, the mustering of the nations against Edom. There's a visual image. Uh, I emphasized that some weeks ago, but I don't want to take any more time uh, this evening because I want to go on to talk about the word superscription. Now, what does the word superscription mean? Anybody define it for me? Like a title or something on top at the beginning. Very good. I like your word on top because superscription comes from two Latin words, superscripto. 
So why did Scripto call themselves a Scripto company? Make Scripto pen and pencils? To write with. Okay, so Scripto means to write. Super means on top of or above. Okay, all right, so above the body of the prophecy, the superscription. So where's the superscription here in verse 1? <laughs> in English, yes, the first four words. The vision of Obadiah. <clears throat> uh, not in Hebrew. In Hebrew, there's a, those are two words. Hatzon, we've talked about Hatzon, meaning the Hebrew word for vision. Hatzon, Obadiah. Obadiah. Okay? The Hebrew pronunciation is a little different. Uh, <clears throat> we, uh, we make our best in, in English uh, by saying Obadiah. But those are two words in Hebrew. Obadiah's vision. So if we were going to really translate this the way the Hebrew reads, we'd say Obadiah's vision. But the vision of Obadiah is certainly acceptable, even though it's more words than the Hebrew themselves. So if we're going to stick to the literal translation of the, the superscription, it would be Obadiah's vision. Now, this superscription, which is two words long, is the shortest superscription of any Old Testament prophecy. It's the smallest superscription in the smallest book of the Old Testament. Well, what is the usual superscription? What are the other qualities of the superscription? Well, for instance, let's take a look at Zephaniah. So keep your finger in Obadiah and turn forward to the book of Zephaniah, which comes after the prophet Habakkuk, as you may know. And as you read, well, first of all, if you have it in front of you, uh, where is the superscription in the book of Zephaniah? Encompasses what? The word of the Lord? No. The superscription here is the whole first verse. Yes, the whole first verse is a superscription in Zephaniah. Now, as you read that, uh, there's something that jumps out at you there in the opening part of that superscription. And what is it? Gives you the name of who? Josiah. True. More important than that to Zephaniah. More important to this this name more important to Zephaniah. The word of the Lord. More important to Zephaniah. Well, that's that's more important, I agree. But there's a name here that's more important. What's the name that's more important here? Is Papa Daddyo. <laughs> Cushai, his father. There's the father of Zephaniah named. Do you find that in Obadiah? No. There is no father named for Obadiah. <clears throat> That's not the only place where a father of the prophet is named, but Zephaniah illustrates it quite well. So the superscription 
of Zephaniah includes the name of Zephaniah's father. All right, now let's turn back to Amos. You've got your finger in Obadiah and just turn back one book to Amos. And where's the superscription in the book of Amos? Chapter, just not the whole first chapter. The whole first verse. Whole Excuse first me. verse. Superscription is on top of the body of the book. Okay, it's a smaller section than the whole book itself. All right. So the first verse of Amos is the superscription, and what does it tell us? He was among the shepherds of Tekoa. What's Tekoa? That's where he was born. That's correct. That's his hometown. All right, so do we have the birthplace of Obadiah in his superscription? No. No, we don't have the place of his birth. And if you turn forward to the book of the prophet Micah, after Obadiah, Jonah Micah, what do you find in that superscription? His hometown, Micah of Morishes. So we have a couple of books, actually we have a few more. We have a couple of prophets that give us their place of birth, their hometown. We have a couple of prophets that give us the name of their fathers. <clears throat> what else do we have? Well, let's take a look at Hosea, which is a kind of supreme example of much of what a superscription should be. Where's the superscription for the book of Hosea? Once again, it's verse 1, right? The first verse of the book is the superscription. <clears throat> That's not true in Obadiah's case. But what do we have with Hosea's superscription? We have his father's name, Beeri. And then we have a list of the time of his existence, the time of his life. He lived during the time of the kings listed there. Kings of Judah and kings of Israel. <clears throat> Jeroboam II, once again, uh, whom we've mentioned earlier this evening, so Hosea gives us the days of the historical days of his career. Do we have that in the case of Obadiah? Nothing. We do not. In brief, then when we look at the superscriptions of the other prophets and compare them to this two-word superscription of Obadiah, the least of the prophets has the least amount of personal information at the opening or at the superscription of his book. This is quite significant because he is unique in this regard. Then you ponder the question why. We won't probe that too far this evening. But nonetheless, you ask yourself why so little personal biography. Of course, I addressed that 
last week in measure in terms of the prophetic narrative biography of the prophet Obadiah. But for this evening purposes, while we have no father's name for Obadiah, we may assume that Obadiah was the son of a devout father. We don't have his father's name, but we may assume with virtual certainty that he was the son of a devout father. Why do I say that? I say that because of what Obadjia means. Obadjia means very close to Eved Yah or Eved Yahweh. Do you recognize the Hebrew Eved Yahweh? Yes, very good. Or Lord. Eved. Servant of the Lord. Yes, the famous servant of the Lord in Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Behold my servant. That is the Ebed Yahweh section of the book of Isaiah. So, the word servant of the Lord, Ebed Yahweh, is very close to Abad Yah. For Yah means Yahweh. And Abad is very close to Ebed. So, in fact, Obadiah's name means or very close to meaning servant of the Lord. That's the reason I think it's likely, it's almost it's certain that he had a devout father and likely a devout mother. For Obadiah is a mirror, Abed Yahweh, as a recipient of the vision of God's word. God's divine servant bears God's divine word. A self-disclosure of God's nature in God's word is given to and through Obadiah as the very Obed, or servant of Yah, of the Lord. These 21 verses of the smallest book of the Old Testament are divine revelation and as much as, as, as such are infallible and inerrant as God breathed divine self-disclosure. God discloses himself to his beloved servant of God. Right now, while we have no birthplace specified for this prophet in the superscription, we may deduce his country of origin from the contents of his prophecy. All right, if you have your finger back to, if you open back to the book of Obadiah, how do we deduce his country of origin? Notice the geographical specificity of his geographical vocabulary. Verse 12, he names the nation of Judah. Verses 17 and 18, he names the house of Jacob. Verses 17 and 21, he names Mount Zion, which, of course, is Jerusalem. So, the geographical prominence in this book, apart from the geography of Edom, which he specifies, the geographical prominence for this book is an indication that Obadiah is certainly a citizen of the southern kingdom of the nation of Judah. Now, as we noted in the case of Hosea, we have no historical 
specification of the historic era in the superscription because he only gives us two words about uh, his about his superscribed material. And so we don't have any kings designated. But the emphasis upon the fall of Jerusalem in this book places our prophet in the age of 586 B.C. and its consequences. All right, so from the internal evidence of the book, we can suggest that he had a godly father because he was named servant of the Lord or a phrase close to servant of the Lord. We know that he was from Judah, and we mentioned last week that he certainly is familiar with the liturgy at the temple in Jerusalem because of the 21st verse of this book, which is very similar to Psalm 28, 22 rather. And we also notice that although there are no kings specified as there are in some of the other superscriptions of the Old Testament prophets, we can deduce that he is speaking in the time of the end of the southern kingdom's existence, namely the destruction by Babylon in 586 B.C. All right, now, the book of Obadiah is a hot zone. I've mentioned that word before. It is a vision. And this vision is <coughs> disclosed or revealed in dramatic Hebrew poetry. Words of visual drama as I've already suggested. Words of visual drama in which God's word vision is communicated to God's servant prophet. The prophet is drawn into the mind of God, into the vision of God, into the word of God, as he records what has been disclosed or revealed to him. I am suggesting that there is a divine human communication in Obadiah's experience. Obadiah participates in God's vision. Obadiah identifies with God's word. Obadiah, Abed Yahweh, mirrors and reflects God's word vision to God's people. There is in this intimacy between God and Obadiah, there is in this intimacy an, anticip- an anticipation of an ineffable intimacy. The Obadiah Lord Union prophesies a God-man incarnation. Obadiah, a small but powerfully dramatic mirror of God the Son become man in the flesh, providing the final self-disclosure of the word vision of the Lord. What I am suggesting here is that the mirror prophet Obadiah mirrors an intimacy guaranteed by revelation. The eschatological prophet Jesus Christ mirrors an intimacy guaranteed by incarnation. If all the law and the prophets speak of Christ, if all the law and the prophets prophesy Christ, Luke 24, If all the law and the prophets and Moses and the writings included, as Jesus specifies in that discussion with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, if all of that is pointing to Christ, then Christ is in it. And what I am suggesting here is that Obadiah 
is a mere representation in terms of the fact that he is a servant of the Lord receiving the word of God by revelation. But there is a greater receiver of that revelation. There is one who incarnates that revelation, who does not just prophesy it. So I am contending that the Christological focus is not merely present in the last verse of Obadiah, a verse obviously messianic and Christ-oriented. We alluded to that last week. I am contending that Christology is embedded in the first verse of Obadiah, in the dramatic dynamic of revealer and the recipient of revelation. That wonderful union here in verse 1 between the Lord and his servant prophet is one, in this case, of distinction, separation, substantial differentiation. Revealer and revelation are distinct and separate. But the ineffable union is that in which revealer and recipient of revelation are one, without distinction, without separation, with consubstantial identification. Christ the revealer is at the same time Christ the recipient of the revelation. That profound union is ontological. And its self-disclosure via incarnation is the manifestation of the ontological supernaturalism of history. In a singular person, the prophet, God the ontological son, proclaiming his vision in the gospel of the fullness of time, and that Ebed Yahweh also speaks of the judgment of the nations. The eschatological Obadiah. This is not a book which is of no consequence. Once you perceive the profound drama of the narrative that is contained in the language of this tiny volume, you realize how remarkable it is in its projection and anticipation. In fact, identification by anticipation of the great prophet that our Lord Jesus Christ is, the final prophet that our Lord Jesus Christ is, the eschatological prophet that our Lord Jesus Christ is, the absolute prophet, because he's the ontological son prophet. You can't get greater than Jesus. You can't. Which is the reason that Jesus, even in the Old Testament era, is pleased to display his glory and majesty through the prophets of old. And that's what he is underscoring in that Luke 24 passage. The depth of the riches of the revelation and the revealer in the Old Testament scriptures. All right. We have indicated that Obadiah's theme is the judgment of Edom, the divine reversal of the fortunes of the land of Edom from prosperous, flourishing arrogance to precipitous, abased destruction. That motif is announced at the outset in the first verse. Rise up, O nations, for she, Edom, is going down. She's going down as the divine declaration of verse 4 makes explicit. The drama of the prophecy revealed here in verse 1 
is part of the unfolding tapestry of the prophet's vision. It is reinforced by the initial use of poetic devices, which Obadiah uses with great genius. We have commented before on his poetic genius, and now we begin to see and hear it as it expressed from the beginning verse of his prophecy. What do we have here? We have here alliteration and assonance. We have alliteration in the phrase, we have heard. It's translated, we have heard in the New American Standard. It is literally to be translated, hearing, we have heard. And I have the Hebrew spelled out or transliterated there for you so that you can see it and sound it out. Shamua, shamanu. Shamua, shamanu. You, you can hear the alliteration. You can hear the initial SHM. It's repeated. Those two words begin with the same two Hebrew consonants. That's an alliterative expression. That alliteration is also present in the second expression, rising, let us rise. Kumu, wanakumwa. You hear the, the, the emphatic U, but you also have the same root, the kum root in Hebrew, which means to rise or stand up. Kumu, vanakuma. In addition to the alliteration in that phrase, we have assonance. You can hear the same sound, ooh, ooh, ooh. It occurs three times in that duplication. All right, so even at the outset, there is this use of poetic idiom or poetic imagery, and it's done by alliteration and by assonantial duplication. This is a way of grabbing the attention of your audience, the audience that listens to the language, listens to the Hebrew language, and immediately hears and can see, can see the nations rising, let us rise. as a vision of them rising. In this emphatic duplication, Shamua, Shamona, Shamanu, Shamanu, Shamanu. Okay. From the beginning then of this vision, this rich tableau of divine initiative, the reversal of Edom is signaled. It is enhanced through poetic expression by which the reader not only sees, but hears the drama of the visual tapestry before him. Hears as if if it's a live performance. Arising, let us rise. This is the call to muster the troops of the nations. What do you hear when mustering troops arise? You hear the clashing of their armor. You hear the outfitting of their of their equipment. You hear the moving of that army. You see and hear the drama, both visual and audible. All of that as if it were a live performance in front of your eyes, a vision that you see and hear in its dramatic force. Which leaves us with a question about the envoy. An envoy has been sent among the nations. Who is this envoy? Who is this messenger sent out among the nations? There are almost as many suggestions as there are opinions about the meaning of the word. Some commentators suggest it is Obadiah himself. He is the messenger sent to summon the nations to arise against Edom. 
Others believe it is the prophet Jeremiah, since the first verse of the book of Obadiah is very similar to verse 14 of Jeremiah 49. You can take a look at that in your leisure and compare the two. You will notice the similarity at once. It jumps out at you. One other writer believes that this envoy is an angel. Well, whoever he is, he has been commissioned by the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, in that Lord God expression, to spread the call to the Gentile nations, to call the Gentile nations, the Goyim, against Edom. Call to arms. Call to arms places battle against Edom imminently on the horizon. The attack of the nations upon Edom is imminent in Obadiah's vision on the panels of his great tapestry. This means that the prophet Obadiah is likely writing about the event near its occurrence. The concatenation or concurrence of the destruction of Jerusalem triggers the retaliatory destruction of Edom. Notice verse 15. As you have done, it will be done to you. As you have cooperated with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, so it will be done to you by the Babylonians. The one event, 586 B.C., followed soon after by the other event, 551 B.C., which, as we indicated in our discussion of the rock relief of Nabonidus, which was discovered at Asila, in 1994, that rock relief which indicates that he destroyed Edom on his march through the Arabian Peninsula in 551 B.C., the fifth year of his rule as emperor or king of Babylon. And in that handout that accompanied that, you had a, a link to a picture of that rock relief that was discovered almost 600 feet above the uh, village of As-Sila, or Sila, in the ancient nation of Edom. All right, well, we did not reach uh, verse 2 this evening, so we'll leave it at that, and we'll return and pick up uh, next time at verse 2 and proceed. If you have any questions or comments about verse 1 or anything else we've considered this evening, I'll be happy to entertain them and respond to them. Yes, Cheryl. Their Edom is being destroyed for their arrogance. See any parallel to that in what's going on today with the U.S. and the States? Uh, no, I wouldn't make uh, leapfrog uh, conclu- comparisons. <clears throat> I would observe that uh, arrogance and pride goes before fall in general. So if there are any general uh, things to be observed, It is that when nations or individuals become uh, so uh, puffed up with their own self-importance, that that generally uh, leads to a downfall of one kind or another, personal or corporate or national or whatsoever. Uh, Pride is its own enemy, and it has its own consequences. doesn't mean that they can't get away with it for a while, but sooner or later, if it becomes a cultural identity becomes a way of life. 
no culture can exist with it. No society can survive with it because it turns into tyranny and tyranny turns into death and oppression. Any other questions or comments? Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we again rejoice in the wonderful, profound mind and artistry of your servant Obadiah, who tells us so little about himself because he wants to tell us much about you. And yet we see him stand with the seed of Jacob. We see him stand with the line of Judah. We see him stand with the house of Joseph. Which house of Joseph is like the house of our Lord Jesus. For he is a lion out of the tribe of Judah. And he is the descendant from the seed of Jacob. We bless you then for Obadiah's identity and participation in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great Savior and Lord and Deliverer from destruction and pride and arrogance and death. Bless us now with that treasured hope and faith and grace through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.